Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Confidential briefings to Associate Health Minister Casey Costello reveal health officials urge the government to retain key aspects of the smoke-free law. Casey Costello plans to scrap the current law, which would slash tobacco retailers from 6,000 to 600, remove 95% of the nicotine from cigarettes and create a smoke-free generation by banning sales to anyone born after 2009. Now, in documents obtained by RNZ, the Health Ministry urged the Associate Health Minister to keep elements of the current law and suggested multiple compromise options, including introducing a purchase age of 25, but the Minister rejected them. Guy Nespina has been investigating this issue and joins us now. Good morning, Guy. Kia ora. Now, one of the government's justifications for overturning the smoke-free laws is this claim that it would, ex- you know, it would expand the black market, increase criminal activity associated with tobacco. Is that addressed in these papers? Yes, it is. And these briefings make it very clear that in the minds of these Ministry of Health officials, this idea of an expanding black market is straight from the tobacco industry playbook. In fact, it says, quote, a common tobacco industry tactic is to assert that tobacco policies will increase an illicit market. It it then says that that is then used to, quote, oppose tobacco control measures such as excise tax increases. Uh, These documents say that the evidence, in fact, points the other way, that, quote, the research has so far found evidence of a decreasing illicit trade in tobacco in New Zealand over the past 10 years. So uh, there are other aspects to the current law which health officials are urging Minister Costello to keep, which they say will also reduce tobacco related crime. One of these is this idea of the very low nicotine cigarettes. As you said in the intro, this uh, this law from April 2025 would mean that 95% of the nicotine is removed from cigarettes. Uh, they say that this would have made them less attractive to steal also. And along with licensing and high standards for tobacco retailers, which were also included in in this current law, that the combination of these policies was expected to reduce the overall risk of crime through fewer targets, more robust security processes and a less appealing product. So these compromises the Ministry of Health was suggesting... um, were there ways in which they could ref- keep any of that? I mean, what exactly are they referring to here? Yeah, there were multiple of these. Um, you know, in, on some pages of the documents I've seen, there are, you know, six, seven, eight of these compromises, and the ministers just circled no, 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 no. Some of it's um, focused on the retailers. The, the health officials said to the minister, hey, look, if you don't want to go right down to just 600 stores, you could go for a higher cap and still reduce the number of stores, or you could introduce a sinking lid policy like you see with some other policies like gaming houses, for example. She rejected that advice. They said, hey, what about um, these things called proximity controls, which is where you um, ban tobacco being sold near schools or other areas of community interest, and we've seen that with the vaping laws, haven't we? Uh, She rejected that that advice too. Um, They said, look, if you don't want to create a whole smoke-free generation by banning sales to people born after 2000, 
you could compromise by making uh, making it 25 that you'd have to be to to uh, to buy cigarettes because they said quote there is a strong there is strong evidence that starting smoking under 25 is is uncommon um, but again she rejected that option the minister um, despite officials saying to her that even smokers uh, support the smoke free uh, generation policy uh, the quote in those papers referring to that says a New Zealand study of people who smoke or have recently quit smoking found over 75 percent support the smoke-free generation policy. All right, so the minister's going to push this through. Do we know when and how this is going to play out? Yeah, I mean, it looks like even today this uh, legislation will be introduced real soon. These documents say that a new law, for a new law to be in place in March, Casey Costello would have to introduce a bill this month, so it's pretty much um, this week, maybe even today. Um, now, if there was a big delay, it could lead to the government inadvertently making it illegal to sell smoked tobacco at all. Now, this is because under this current law, and we talked a little bit about this, there was going to be these 600 retailers, they all had to be licensed, they were going through this process to be licensed to sell tobacco. That got uh, put on hold when the government came in in December and is now in limbo. The documents say if the changes to the Smoke-Free Act requiring approval to sell smoked tobacco products are not repealed before the 1st of July 2024, there's a risk of no or limited legal supply of smoked tobacco in New Zealand due to a lack of approval. So, look, that's interesting, but I think it's it's, it's very unlikely to happen. I don't think we're going to see inadvertent tobacco prohibition by mistake. Um, This bill will be passed quickly. Uh, According to these papers, it'd have to be done under urgency, which, of course, means that it won't get that normal full sub- select committee scrutiny that you would normally see. Just finally, going, I think I read, so, yeah, it was, in the, it was in the Herald this morning suggesting that it would be introduced today, possibly uh, this week. Um, does that imply then, this has gone through a full cabinet process, that the minister would have put a cabinet paper up saying, not going to do it, that's it, would none of these... Other ideas would have made it no. that far in the process. No, I mean, and she's, she, it's clear from from these papers that um, you know, while they're urging her to keep these aspects of the of the law, that she said no um, and has, has circled no, don't want this, don't want that. Um, so yes, it will have gone through through cabinet. And obviously, they've got the numbers. Remember, um, New Zealand First An Act was was also opposed uh, to, to to Labor's laws. So. There's no question that they will have the numbers to pass um, and that they'll whip it through pretty quickly. Thank you very much, Guy and Espiner. Labor has hit out to add a government inquiry into the school property system, saying, quote, National are choosing to prioritise tax cuts over classrooms for children. The three-month review will look into building projects promised to hundreds of schools. Twenty projects have already been paused, and the Ministry of Education says up to 350 projects might need to be scaled down or scrapped. But Papa Moore College Principal Ivar Ropati says this might mean they can't accommodate their students going forward. We increase our role by 50 to 100 a year. It's not going to be too far away before we're in some serious strife unless we have the space to uh, deliver our curriculum. I think we are being caught up uh, in a, a little bit of a political shift a government that are putting down their own stake in the ground in terms of where money could be allocated. Education Minister Erica Stanford joins us now. Kia ora, good morning, Minister. Good morning. When it all comes down to it, is this a cost-saving exercise by your government? Absolutely not. 
we made that very clear in the stand-up yesterday. We have asked, not asked the Ministry to make any cost savings in school buildings. We haven't given them any directives to stop uh, classrooms being built. Uh, and this is a very, I made it very clear to my officials in the budget process that, that we're not touching school property. In fact, quite the opposite. As I said in the stand-up yesterday, uh, school property is a priority for this government. The problem that we have is a delivery problem. And by the Ministry's own admission, uh, we've had scope creep and you know, a focus on rebuilding rather than upgrading, over-engineering over and uh, extensive landscaping and an over-reliance on bespoke design. So the question for Labor is, uh, you know, did they get good value for taxpayers' money over the last six years and deliver as many classrooms as they could for uh, for the money that they were spending. And I'd say that they definitely didn't because now we have a, a, a backlog of 350 schools. That, by the way, uh, the Ministry of Education started this process in September before uh, you know, we were even in government of rescoping, redesigning uh, and reprioritising. There were some pretty strong signals around, though, that you were wanting to save money. But let's just pop that to the side. In terms of the, the bespoke designs that you're talking about, we've been speaking mm. to uh, a school principal at Papamore who said that is not the case with his project, which has now been put on hold. Uh, former mm. Minister Tanetti as well, saying that modular designs are regularly used. So what do you mean by bespoke? <laughs> Uh, we go into schools, and, uh, and I've been into many, um, where you know they'd won an architectural award um, because of the fact that we've had uh, architects involved and they've designed their own classrooms. And they are beautiful spaces, don't get me wrong. But the uptake of repeatable modular designs has not been done at scale. Now, Jan Tanetti can say every day you know, in the house, oh, we put this policy in place, but... but the problem is that they didn't deliver on it. Uh, and there are isolated examples across the country, and I've seen them, of repeatable designs uh, and, and modular buildings that uh, that have been created off-site and bought on-site. I don't disagree that they've been used in some cases, but it hasn't been rolled out at scale by the ministry's own admission. Uh, they're saying to schools uh, in their communication going out at the moment that there has been an over-reliance on bespoke designs at the same time with the cost escalation in buildings. So... We have to, you know, we are always a government that makes sure that we get best uh, value for money out of taxpayers' money, and that's what we're intending to do. With but isn't this, isn't uh, value for money just another way of saying cheap? I mean, look at let's look at some of the the uh, the buildings that have been uh, well, put on hold, uh, Farinui and gymnasiums. Are they are they too fancy? But they're not fancy. It's just that we have to pri- they have to prioritise, and the government. Uh, sorry, well, are they beyond the scope of what you think should be funded? Well, at the moment, the government uh, are looking at you know making sure we're getting as many classrooms as we possibly can to account for role growth because of the explosion and uh, numbers of children from migrant families who are turning up. So that's a priority. This exercise, as I say, started in September. I have not come in and said stop building gymnasiums. This was something that started after, by the way, Grant Robertson put out his decree saying. Uh, you know, we, we need to save some money. So as per usual, what Labor do is they pour money into infrastructure and then at the very last minute have a sit down and have a think about whether or not they delivered good value for money. OK, can uh, I just take you back to the Farinui and Gymnasium? Because I guess uh, there is a logic that would suggest you could build more classrooms for the price of, uh, you know, a Farinui or a gymnasium at a school. Are those kinds of projects going to be funded through your government? We are going to be putting more money every year into school property, like we always have done, like every government has done. The problem that we have at the moment is that just the classrooms, though. No, no. If, the problem that we have at the moment is we have a pipeline of 
projects that cannot be delivered on because of the previous government not putting in place the proper processes and policies to ensure they could build things uh, that had good value for money. So, right, so bespoke design. So now we find ourselves in a situation where we have 350 schools that, that are not able to be completely delivered on and need to be rescoped, reprioritized, and redesigned because of that issue. And that will mean that, and, and this has been a process that's been ongoing since September, that the Ministry of Education are having to take a look at where are the critical pressures and what can we afford to do right now. Uh, and that is a process that they are going through. So the minister, this is a, a decision for the ministry. They decide on uh, what classrooms get built and what gymnasiums get built. That is an operational decision for them. The, the government doesn't make those decisions. The ministry does. How much cheaper do you think these projects or these buildings can be done for? What, what sort of discount that's on what is being done at the moment are you looking at? That's the uh, why we wanted to have a an inquiry to find out how we got here. How does it cost $1.2 million on average to build a classroom? Uh, when we know that repeatable designs, modular buildings, off-site manufactured uh, classrooms uh, that can be brought onto site can be done much Cheaper. But are you so sure that, that with be... the variations, with the sunk costs, uh, with going out and rescoping these jobs and with the passage of time, that they might end up being just as expensive? Well, that is a decision for the ministry that they're undertaking at the moment. And they've told me that they're taking a stock take of these 350 schools to work out exactly that. In the meantime, you've got schools like uh, Eva Rōpati's Papamore College. Uh, they are two-thirds of the way through their project, uh, and they're stuck. They say it was well-managed, it was within budget. There were no challenges, a few slight variations, nothing significant, no overspending, uh, and now they're stuck with a growing role so, and nowhere to put the children. But my understanding of Papamore College is that they are almost at the end of their project, and they have had classrooms uh, delivered, and they're at the very end where they're looking at, I think it is a gym and a, um, a whanganui or, or something. Uh, the, the issue that the ministry have now got, um, because of this build-up of a pipeline of projects that the previous government weren't able to deliver on, they are now going to go back and look at and redesign and rescope and reprioritise. Uh, and that, as I say, is an operational decision. And they will have to go and look at whether or not uh, they can uh, bring down the cost of a gymnasium, for example, at Papamoa so that they can build a classroom somewhere else. And so, that is a decision for the ministry that they will make. It is operational. But it is because the previous government were unable to deliver uh, on this pipeline because they didn't put the policies and procedures in place to well, make sure they were Jan getting good has said they would have delivered it. Are. Jay Antonetti said they would have continued to fund these projects, they would have increased funding as they did every year in government, and these classrooms and these buildings would have been built under their government. So why was it, then you need to ask Jay Antonetti, why was it in September on her watch that the, the Ministry of Education had to start rescoping, redesigning and reprioritising all of these classrooms? So who's going because to fund these? Who, we came into government. Who's going to pay for these buildings now? Are you looking at? I mean, there's obviously. I mean, you would agree that buildings need to be built. There's obviously uh, discrepancy yes. over how much they should cost. Are you looking at public-private partnerships to fund projects going forward? Yes, we are. We're looking at everything. That's what I've said to this. Uh, um, the ministerial inquiry, or what I will say to them when, we've, when we appoint them, is in their terms of reference, to look at everything. Because we have critical pressures in our schools at the moment. I'm hearing from schools who are saying we're about to you know, uh, stop taking in-zone kids because of critical pressures. So I am very much uh, uh, across what's happening in the school system. And this inquiry doesn't mean that everything else stops. 
you know, we will be identifying where the critical pressures are uh, and working on a plan to make sure we're delivering classrooms for those schools. We will also uh, be going through the budget process, and I can't say much, but I can tell you that we will be prioritising school property through the budget process. So there are a number of... Increasing funding for school property? We will be funding school property. It will be a priority. I can't talk about the detail because I get myself in a bit of strife with the Minister of Finance, but I can, I can tell you it is a priority for this government to fund school property. Appreciate your time this morning. That was Education Minister Erica Stanford. Cancer patients who should have bone marrow transplants within four weeks are waiting four months or longer because services are overloaded. Doctors and advocacy groups warn those delays could be deadly and they are disappointed at the lack of action from the Cancer Control Agency. Ruth Hill reports. Invercargill man Mark was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a cancer of the white blood cells, in March 2017. He had his first bone marrow transplant right on schedule in September that year, but relapsed at the end of 2020. Doctors said he'd need another transplant by July 2021. Yeah, we'd been given a couple of two-week warning sort of things. They get you in a couple of weeks before and do a bunch of tests on you. and Yeah, they get getting pushed back and then heard nothing. At one point he got COVID and was bumped off the list. And then that stretched out and I didn't get my transplant until uh, 2022, um, September 2022. Multiple myeloma, which dissolves the bones, usually affects people in their 70s, but Mark was just 51 when he was diagnosed. He's keeping as fit as he can in the hope he won't need another transplant for a couple of years, but worries the wait for the last one has already hastened the disease's progress. Since then I had a scan and they found another lesion on my hip, which is a new one, so that's possibly the delay has thinned my bones even more. Consultant haematologist Professor Peter Brout says waiting times for transplants have become acute in the last two and a half years. That's partly due to increased demand from an ageing population. Six years ago, the team in Auckland was doing 50 to 60 transplants a year. Now, you know, transplanting in the adult setting around 120 uh, patients per year, but there hasn't been an equivalent increase in the resourcing, the staff and the facilities to look after those increased numbers of transplant patients. Professor Brout, who's also Medical Director of Leukaemia and Blood Cancer New Zealand, says some patients can afford to wait longer than others, depending on the type of cancer they have. Those with acute leukaemia need transplants within four to six weeks of chemotherapy, but they're often waiting three or four months before there's an available slot. And so that's the group of patients that are disadvantaged, that are needing sort of further treatment and are at risk of their disease recurring before we can take them through to transplant. Professor Browett says there's been a lot of talk with clinicians over plans for more staff and patient beds. But as yet, we haven't seen actions from that uh, plan that's been developed by uh, Te Aho, the uh, cancer agency. Te Aho o Te Kahu, the cancer control agency, says officials have been working closely with the sector since becoming aware of delays for stem cell transplants in 2021. In a written statement, Chief Executive Rami Rahal says it's monitoring waiting lists, developing business cases for future investment in staffing and facilities, and working on national care standards. We remain focused on supporting Te Whatu Ora and the wider health system to ensure wait times are addressed and people receive care more quickly. But Professor Browett says the lack of progress is disappointing. 
That report from Ruth Hill. The government will introduce the bill repealing the Māori Health Authority under urgency today. Now, this comes days before an urgent Waitangi tribunal inquiry into the move, which kicks off on Thursday. Our lead claimant, Lady Tūreti Moxham, joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. What will this mean if this legislation is introduced today? Does it affect your claim? Well, it means that our, our urgent claim before the Waitangi tribunal will not be heard um, until after the legislation has been passed. And were you hoping that if it was heard that it might, what, within those two days, recommend a delay or something that you, you hoped the government was going to listen to? Well, we, we were hoping that the government would would, um, would reverse its decision to disestablish Te Akawhai Order and listen to what our people say and what we need and what, and what the Waitangi Tribunal um, will say in terms of breaches of Te Tiriti. And that's the thing about about this this whole process. It's been very, 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 very dismissive of not just the claimants, but of the Waitangi Tribunal as well. Mm. So uh, what now? Uh, you don't. I mean, the government has made pretty clear for quite some time they wanted to do this. They were going to ignore these recommendations anyway, weren't they? Well, you know, they were given the opportunity to tell tell the tribunal exactly what it was they were going to replace it with, but they haven't come back with any any ideas or any answers to that fact. And so, basically, what they're doing is they're just pushing us back underneath um, Fatu order to um, do what they've always done, which is basically um, inequities in house for Maori will continue to grow. Do you believe that this move to, I mean, they've got a very tight schedule to get their 100-day plan through. This is part of it. They will argue this is part of that process. But do you believe that this is a deliberate move to avoid that scrutiny of the tribunal? Well, I think it is. It's absolutely. We're told four days up from the hearing that um, they're going to uh, submit the bill today. And we're told, you know, just... Um, Despite the fact that the Waitangi Tribunal had gave plenty of notice to everybody that this was going to, you know, that the, the um, case was going to be heard, and yet here we are, days out um, from it, they decide that they're going to push that bill through, and and again, Corin, the issue here isn't so much that that um, this government can't well do what it wants to do. It has absolutely ignored the, our Māori voices. Yes, I was going to ask it's you about that. that. Is yes. this a breach of good faith, in a sense, the good faith it's, that is inherent in, in the treaty and in the, in, in the partnership? That's exactly right. It is a breach of good faith. And not only is it a breach of good faith, they absolutely have dismissed us completely as having having no voice and really being very dismissive of the Waitangi Tribunal and the processes of the Waitangi Tribunal. So they've given, put nothing in its place. They're taking away something that Māori have said very clearly that we want to remain and we want to, to continue um, with. But now they've decided, no, 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 this is a political decision, so we'll do what we want. Just finally, I mean, Shane Jones has indicated he wants to limit the scope 
of the Waitangi Tribunal, not necessarily to, for urgent inquiries like this, uh, but he's more concerned about their constitutional work. Are you worried about the status of the tribunal? Well, you know, again, that's another political decision that they always um, bring up every single time they um, they are wanting to win votes. And so that's that's how how this all plays out. It goes, need, you know, anti-Māori stance, anti-Māori sentiment, and anything to do with us, um, particularly the treaty. And it was very clear at Waitangi, very clear at the hui in uh, Tūrangamaiwai, in Ngāruahia, that the people are very, very concerned of the tampering of the um, of the treaty, tampering that's going on at the moment and the, the kind of talk, that rhetoric that's coming out, particularly from people who are like Shane Jones, who, you know, who belongs to the place where the treaty or Waitangi um, mm. Well, perhaps we'll talk to we'll talk to Shane Jones, no doubt, about a bit more about his uh, thoughts on the tribunal. Thank you for yours. That was the lead claimant, Lady Tureti Moxon. Well, the family of a couple killed in the Fakari White Island eruption have told a sentencing judge they want the companies involved held to account. Emotional victims and families spoke of their grief and anger yesterday as a two-week sentencing hearing got underway. Five companies, including the island's owner and the Crown Research Institute GNS, have been found guilty of health and safety failings in the lead-up to the disaster, Maya Ingo reports. Australian Richard Elzer was at the end of a world tour with his partner, Carla Matthews, when they were killed in the Fakari eruption four years ago. Family members choked back tears as they recalled the days after the tragedy. Richard Elza's sister, Shannon, says she collapsed on the street when she learned her brother was on the island. I still hear my dad's voice <laughs> sobbing the words, my son, over and over, when he told me what had happened. Her father, Peter, says the death of the young couple has shattered dreams. Both succumbed to their injuries and were never able to fulfil their dreams of mutual love, togetherness and raising their own children. Younger sister Amelia Elza says she'll never get over what happened after her brother's death. Having the media follow my family time after time, breaking the boundaries of our privacy to get the best story coming to our family home three days after the eruption to gain some inside information. Three days. We had no room to grieve in private. Peter Elza says his son was not a thrill seeker and put his trust in the tour operators and the island's owners. That trust was unfounded as they did not ensure his safety and he paid the ultimate price. Amelia says before last year's trial, she had tried to accept the tragedy as a natural disaster rather than placing blame. Having learnt the truth behind the reason why my family and I lost my big brother and his beautiful partner has been a pretty hard pill to swallow. Now I kind of feel like a victim of negligence and sheer recklessness. Earlier in the day, WorkSafe prosecutor Christy MacDonald had told the court the judge's ability to sentence was severely hampered by the defendant's financial situation, in particular that of Ficardi Management Limited. WML has said it has no money or other assets and does not offer any money by way of reparation.
Elder's sister, Mika Elza, told the court she raged when a guilty sentence was handed down. The thought that my little brother's death was preventable makes me question the intentions of the company. And she has questions about the reparations. Hearing Fakari Management Limited's missions this morning has also made me question the intentions of the company in submitting that they have empty pockets in this time of tragedy. She says no amount of money can bring her brother back, but called on the court to make amends another way. To know that this company and others who failed in their duties have not got away with their negligent conduct sends a message moving forward that one cannot merely profit from natural environments. More meaningful than economic reparation, I think, would be a public acknowledgement of this sentiment. Well, Wellington Water will not be able to properly fluoridate the supply to much of Wellington and Lower Hutt for another three months. Yesterday, it admitted that fluoride levels have not been up to Ministry of Health standards over the past four months. Additionally, a water regulator, Taumata Arawai, has told the company the water supply to 800 lower hut homes uh, is not adequately chlorinated. We're joined now by Wellington Water's Chief Executive, Tonya Haskell. Kia ora, good morning, Tonya. Welcome to the programme. Uh, what's gone wrong with the, well, shall we start with the fluoride? What's gone wrong with that? Uh, Morena. Ingrid. So what's happened with the fluoride is that we um, had a review in 2022, as you'll know, and it found that we weren't fluoridating properly, and we also weren't letting people know when fluoride wasn't in our water system. So out of that, we now have a reporting and notification system that makes sure that if we take um, equipment out for maintenance or in this case, we've got a, a couple of pumps that aren't working as well as they should, that we let people know. Okay, so you get a pass mark on the letting people know, although it has yeah. not been working for four months, I understand. So uh, that does well, seem like a while. Yeah, and when, when we say not working, the Ministry of Health sets a standard that we need to put 0.7 to 1 um, parts per million into the system 95% of the time. So we're not meeting that 95% mark. So it's between, we are still fluoridating, and it's between 90 and 95%. So there is still fluoride in the water. It's just not enough to meet those Ministry of Health guidelines. So what's gone wrong with the maintenance that these pumps aren't meeting the standards in any case? Yeah, good question. So in 2022, we weren't fluoridating from a, um, a water treatment plant called Gear Island. We um, knew fluoride equipment there. Um, we had to make a choice whether we put something in place that would do the job or get the proper equipment, which at that time, you know, with COVID, was going to take a year to turn up. So we made the decision to put in these lesser standard pumps. They're not working as well as they should be. Our people are spending a lot of time maintaining them, which is why the levels fluctuate. Um, but we've got the pumps on, the good pumps on order from June, and then they should be here in the next few months. When did you, if you knew that the pumps were not up to standard, when did you order the suitable pumps? Oh, a, a couple of months ago, I believe. Yep. Okay. What about the uh, uh, the chlorine? So um, chlorine is the um, is a barrier for safe drinking water. What it does is it it treats the water from the water treatment plant to your tap. So what it does is it keeps the water safe in case you know there's bugs in your parts of the pipes or in the network. 
and there are standards about how much chlorine you should have in there. Tomata Arawai's come in and set some standards across New Zealand, which is, and they've set a standard that is just slightly higher for 800 homes in Lower Hutt. Okay, so 800 homes in Lower Hutt are not getting uh, properly treated water. Are there safety risks involved with that? Not at all. So that water is safe to drink. It met the old guidelines. The bar is being lifted, and rightly so. They're not getting enough... Sorry, they're getting... They are too close to the water treatment plant, which means there's not enough contact time with chlorine. And uh, that's what we're going to have to work through a design to make sure those homes get enough contact. And how long, is, how long is that going to take? That, that's going to take a couple of years because we need to reconfigure the network so that the water takes longer to flow to the home and gets the right amount of contact time. You're sort of implying this is not a big deal. You did ask for an exemption uh, from Taumata Arawai, which was declined. Why was that? Well, they, they've set a bar. They've got a job to do across New Zealand to set standards for water, and we respect that. So... We did apply for the exemption to, because the water is safe to drink under the old standards. They've quite rightly said, no, these are the new standards. Please meet those. And it's going to take two years for that to happen? Yes, it will. Yep. What do you want to say to the people of uh, the Wellington region uh, who are now in this position again of knowing their water isn't properly fluoridated and now there's a chlorine issue as well? Look, we, we are... Um, so there is fluoride in the water, there is chlorine in the water, your water is safe to drink. We're working really hard to get ourselves up to the standards that are set by our regulators. And that's our job, and we are committed to that. appreciate your time this morning. That was Wellington Waters Chief Executive Tonya Haskell. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 